This is the ESPN Aussie Hoops Alcade Pittman alongside Olga Norlich. And while there was a fever break this week, that does not mean that this podcast is not going to continue to roll on. We're going to talk about the NBL and we're going to talk about some of the Aussie performances in the NBA so far this season. Uh, but the beautiful thing about this is while we've got no fresh NBL games to recap from the weekend's play, Olgan, uh, I didn't really know what to do on the weekend without the NBL on my TV screens. It felt a little bit weird, but the beauty of it is that we have got some news that we can discuss regarding the <laughs> NBL right up the top. We do. So first thing, uh, yesterday, it was, it was Monday here in Australia, and... I got a call from someone who was like, oh, don't you hate when you get to Monday and there's nothing to nothing to talk about and you got to figure out what to talk about? <laughs> and in my mind, I was like, oh, no, I thought it was Sunday. So this fever break really got me out of whack to the point where I, I completely lost my days. There was a lot going on. Um, well, I think the whole point is that there was nothing going on. And so I had to try to like figure out what to do with my time. Lost track of days. But we go into today, which is a Tuesday, um, with the news that the NB- the all NBL teams for this season will now transition to being positionless, uh, which is something that I I believe is close to your heart. Uh, it's something that I think last season we could have used. There are some seasons where you don't need it. Uh, there's a chance that this season we, we we really don't need it to be positionless, but that's the way that basketball is headed. So you might as well have these all NBL teams be positionless too. But right off the bat, and, and there is another bit of news here as well, but but just on that bit of news, that the All-NBL teams are positionless. We're not going, you know, three outside and two inside or whatever. We're just going five really good basketball players. What's what's the first thought that comes off based on that news? Joy, happiness, <laughs> emotions. <laughs> it is. I just think it makes sense. Now, whether or not you wanted to go positionless, or you wanted to have something a little more structured. I mean, my point throughout the last few years as I've been complaining about it endlessly is just the idea of what the heck is an inside player and what is an outside player in today's basketball? It just doesn't really work that way. Now, there's some loose descriptions you can point to, like Alan Williams. Yeah, he's an old-school inside player. But you have hey. some other guys that might play the majority of their minutes at the traditional four and five, as they do the air quotes. But they might also still shoot three or four threes a game and spend a lot of their time out on the perimeter. So a guy like Mitch Creek is someone that I think about that plays a lot on the perimeter as much as his probable nominal position is probably the four. So I just always found it hard when going through this process of trying to build an old NBL team. The criteria didn't allow me to do what made sense so i think if you at least go positionless my take on this is and i'm interested to see where you sit if i'm still putting an all nbl team together now that it is positionless and i guess in theory you could have five point guards in your all nbl first team i think i'm still going to try and build a team because i think that's the way my brain is going to go in this area when i'm trying to put together uh, who i would nominate But I think most importantly now, there is no restrictions and you do have the freedom to just put a team together that that makes sense. So I think that's the way I would probably approach it. Yeah, we so we went through this last year where there are a ton of really good bigs. And I think someone like Keanu Pinder probably missed out, even though he was top three in MVP and and he, he was a top three MVP guy the whole season long. And all of a sudden, we just can't put him in all NBL conversations, at least first team conversations, because... 
we have to use up these these inside spots for other guys. So that's something there. And I, I do agree with you that the inclination would just be to create a basketball team. Um, but that does mean that you mentioned Mitch Creek. I think DJ Hogue is another one who I believe I was an inside player. But he's an elite three-point shooter um, and basically plays like 50-50 like inside and out. So, so that was a weird part of it. I do think, to your point, that all things equal, if we have four point guards that are that are locked for this All NBL first team, and then let's say it's down to like a Jordan Crawford and Joe Luala Chul Jr., I do think that all of our minds, and I think rightly so, all things equal would say let's put the center in this, uh, and I think that that may just be because of okay, this guy's the fifth best point guard, he's going to be in the All NBL first team, like that, that that might be part of it, but I also think it's we want this to look like a basketball team. And and there's generally at least one big in there. And the thing that I found interesting was that on the jump last week, we were asked to put together our All-NBL first teams up until this point. And we basically just put regular old basketball games together anyway. Everyone had... And, and I think it was just because that's just what the performances dictated up until this point. Everyone had JLA and Alan Williams in their team because they've been extremely effective. Whether that changes, we will see. But I like the fact that if it does, if that does change, we can shift based on this new rule, which is cool. I think it's very cool. And I think, it, again, I keep on saying it, but I think it makes sense. But if I go back to what the squads looked like last week, you're right. We all had Alan Williams. We all had Joe Lawala Chul. But just mentally, yep. I had a bit of trouble putting those names there only because they've missed a bunch of basketball this season. And if it hadn't been last year, then I think that when you were putting those bigs together, you would have had an easier time mixing and matching names and, and putting them on these all NBL teams. And when you point to Keanu Pinda last year, he missed so much basketball that it probably was just by virtue of that, that he wasn't there. Whereas this year, when you are thinking about what big men could be in the all NBL first team, let alone the second, you are looking at guys that to this point have missed a, a fair bit of basketball here. And in our squads that we had, I didn't have Bryce Cotton, I would suspect that he's probably going to be there by the end of the season, certainly based on what he's done over the last five weeks. But you had to make a decision. I had Milton Doyle. I had uh, Chris Golding in there. And I had Jalen Adams. Maybe Bryce Cotton's there ahead of Jalen Adams anyway. But I do think that there are more quote-unquote perimeter players. If you want to go on last year's status, guys that have the ball in their hands that can shoot from the outside. I think that's where the talent is in the league this season, more so than your big men. I agree. And so you, you mentioned Doyle, uh, Jalen Adams. I think someone like Parker Jackson Cartwright is going to, is going to sneak up there. If the breakers win some more games, like there are, there's a lot of talent out there. I wonder if any of, any of these other United guards can sneak in there. I wonder if any of these Southeast Melbourne guards can, can do something in this back end of the season. So far, they've, they've been somewhat underwhelming, but again, like I, I think the, the guard talent around the league is there. It seems like all the big talent is very like complimentary. And so these aren't necessarily the guys who are going to be elevated into sort of all NBL status um, unless they pop off. Even someone like Keanu Pinder is complimentary, basically, in Perth. And so I don't know if he's going to be part of these conversations going forward unless he really pops off. Um, so again, I, I do like the fact that we now have this flexibility and that we can just chop and change. And, and it, it mirrors what a basketball team in 2023 is like, which I, which I think is preferable. The other change that has been made is that so remember last season I think there was maybe two or three weeks still to go 
and the the votes were in for these awards. Yes. And so basically, these voters could not take into account the back, the very back end of the season. And so, no matter how you you could have a fifty piece, it just it wouldn't be accounted for in these voting. Now the votes will take place after the regular season finishes, and so we will truly get an all encompassing uh, sort of body of work from these guys um, instead of missing out the last two three games these guys might play, which could be the difference between winning an award and coming second. And I can tell you from experience that it never made sense that that was the case because I reckon to tally the votes with the small amount of people that were involved originally, certainly in the nominations, then you get to the players and coaches, it wouldn't take that long. There's no point in doing it. You could get it done in an hour or so after the last game. I agree. Um, And we've both been part of these sorts of things. And uh, yeah, the the fact that I I don't know why they did it. I don't know if it was logistical. I think it's, it's like, uh, coaches and captains and all these people have to vote. I guess they don't want to bug them. Uh, but these are things that, like, money is a thing here. Um, like, guys have different clauses in their respective contracts. Someone winning uh, an award of some kind could add a few tens of thousands of dollars at the end of their next contract. It could be the thing that a European team looks at and says, oh, we want that guy because he won this award. And so these... It, it makes sense, and I like that the NBL is doing this to, to take this stuff seriously. Because as much as it feels like semantics, it's a it's a fun little award. This does have material impact on these guys' careers. Imports jutting off those types of things. I know they've been pointed to as reasons in the past, which are valid to be fair. But I think that this just makes more sense. Just make it happen, uh, because as you said, there are so many important games in the last uh, couple of weeks of the season, last couple of games of the season here. I do want to point out. Our weekly column, headline or storyline, that's just dropped. The day late this week, I'll take the blame for that. That was absolutely my fault. And <laughs> we got it up uh, just here as we're recording this, but I thought that there were some fascinating talking points. And for good reason, Olden, we have focused on Melbourne and Sydney and certainly Tasmania a fair bit in this podcast as well. Southeast Melbourne have been bubbling around the surface, the Perth Wildcats. What about a couple of teams that we haven't actually spoken about a lot, Adelaide and Brisbane? And there was an interesting part of this column from today, an interesting question. I feel like that could be weird that I'm saying that real self-promotion type stuff, but I just think it's a fun (laughs) read and I think it's a fun exercise for our listeners to go through as well. And one of the questions we asked this week was headline or storyline, the top six is locked in. Where did you land on that? And what team do you think is in the mix to potentially come into the top six right now, which as it currently stands, if I pull up the standings, Melbourne, Sydney, Tasmania, Perth, Southeast Melbourne and Brisbane. Is there a team outside of that that you see getting into the top six? Full disclaimer: I have not read any of your answers. You, you or Pete Hawley. I have not gone to because I just sent mine in. Right, it wasn't my job to to file the entire thing this week. So I've yet to yeah. to get eyes across yours. So just a heads up there. Uh, my team was New Zealand. They're, they're, for me, they're the only team that I think has like somewhat of a foundation and a ceiling to to make some noise amongst those top teams. Now, with them, we spoke about them last week. Them keep, keeping their head above water uh, until Zylan Cheatham gets back and until Wilmot Dow White gets back is um, is just so key and, and obviously key to getting in there. But I also pointed out that Southeast Melbourne has a really tough schedule to end this season. They 
They go up against Sydney twice. They go up against Melbourne twice. They go up against Tassie twice. They go up against Perth. So I think Perth twice. And so they have a bunch of teams in the top six that they're going up against. Teams that I think are going to remain in the top six. And so they're a team that I, I think is very precariously sitting in the fifth score right now. Brisbane is another team that I think has had its ups and downs and, and could sneak out of there. And, and I think if a team's going to somehow get get in there, I think New Zealand does have the talent. They do need to turn a lot of stuff around. Um, they've spent this FIBA break figuring out how to play without Cheatham and McDowell. Basically, they've had to change up their, their entire style of play because now they all of a sudden only have like one guy who can handle the ball in Parker Jackson car run. So they're trying to figure out how to maximize their, their key guys and play a different style. If they can get their stuff together, then three and seven isn't irredeemable. I I just I like their ceiling, basically. Yeah, you've and to be fair to you, and it's been look, you make your predictions and you look at the teams that you like at the start of the season, and when they get absolutely derailed by injuries, it's tough when you've when you've had high hopes for yep. the team, and you've certainly been with the breakers all season long, and I think that it makes sense. But when you say that they're looking at how they can play without those two guys, and to me, I'm sorry, but if you are looking at how to learn to play without two of your best three players. It's going to be challenging. That would be my answer to yep. that question that you're trying to find the answer to. So I agree. Out of the break now, this is where it's going to be really, really important for New Zealand. They just can't afford to drop too far below 500. Uh, so you haven't read, and that's a good point, actually. The article's just gone live as we're recording this. It and just I dropped, ha- <laughs> What do you think I am? Well, I'm trying not to be offended by the fact you didn't read uh, Minor <laughs> and Peter Hawley's work, but you can do so at ESPN.com.au. And I have had the pleasure of reading your answers as I put this column together and send it away to the people that do the real important work and edit our typos and put them up there. We don't have too many. And I actually said that this is a storyline. Now, I understand so far out from the end of the season, you can say, well, gee, really? You think that the top six isn't going to change, particularly in a league where it's been so up and down, teams have found form and lost form. But I based it on the fact that right now, the team that is the most precarious in the top six is Brisbane. They're five and seven. So they're two games over 500. And if you look at the way their win-loss has gone this season, it's an impossible team to actually get a read on right now because they won two games, then they lost four, then they won three, then they lost three. And so it's hard to really see where this team sits. But I look at Brisbane and I put the numbers up against the schedule that they've had so far this season. They've been solid defensively, actually. It's been the offense where the problem has been for this Brisbane team. They've had some guys in and out of the lineup. But they've had a really difficult schedule. So they've played 9 out of 12 games against teams that are in the top 5. Now, what that means is that on the run home, they've got 10 of their last 16 games against bottom 4 teams as it currently stands. And I think that if they can take care of business, they've got 3 games against Illawarra. Uh, and obviously, though, they will play teams like Adelaide and New Zealand that you pointed to. And I just think if Brisbane can take care of business, they can hover around that 500 mark because they're right there already just a couple of games under. And I do think that based on the schedule, unless Brisbane completely falls apart, I think they're going to be a tough team to to catch if you're already two or three games behind them. Yeah, Brisbane, I, I, I love Brisbane as well. And they're not a team that I think is going to miss out on this top six especially if they remain healthy. And like that's that's obviously a big if. But So they're going into this weekend. I think they go, they, they go to Cairns, I believe, this weekend. And they, they're going to be healthy, fully healthy, for the first time this season, which they've never been. And so, Grant, given the schedule, 
that you just mentioned that they have remaining and the fact that they will be fully healthy. Uh, yeah, again, I don't see them as a team that, that is going to be knocked out of there. Southeast was was one that I think is in a, an, an awkward situation with regard to the remainder of their schedule. Uh, Perth is... I'm still not completely sold on Perth, but I just think they're, they're talented enough and Bryce Cotton is Bryce Cotton enough for them to just remain in there. But yeah, it's it's. I think it's more likely than not that this top six will remain. But I, I wouldn't completely rule out something sneaky like in New Zealand. I, I'm, I'm reticent to, to put Adelaide in the same conversation, even though they do look like they're figuring some stuff out. They do have more of an offensive punch. I just don't think they have foundationally like anything defensively and even then I, I just feel like their win over southeast the other day was sort of just like putting a band-aid over some pretty significant issues that the entire team has i just don't think they're a team that is it, i don't think they're i think they're clearly not better than any of those teams in the top six um but new zealand again it's just i just think they have too many talented guys i think parker jackson Cartwright is too talented i think anthony lamb is too talented for this team not to go and do something. If the faith in the break is, I say, I'll stick fat, stick with this team, because if I they was, come through and they make because the top I was six. on them early on. <laughs> okay, I was on them really early on. Maybe I just want to stick to that. I don't want to be wrong. It might be that. It might be just that early bias. I don't know. No, I like it. As, so as someone who is very, very, very stubborn when it comes to my predictions, I highly recommend that you stick <laughs> with them. Now... Uh, just one final note on Adelaide, and then we'll move on to the NBA here. The NBL back, obviously, this week on ESPN. You can catch all the games there. Uh, Old's Notebook coming up on Wednesday as well. So there's all the content you need on ESPN.com.au, so make sure you check that out. So with Adelaide, you mentioned the fact that uh, offensively, they've found something since DJ Pasevich has been there. 101.6 was the offensive rating in the pre-DJ era. In the post-DJ era, in six games, that offensive rating has skyrocketed to 112.6. So their offense was just getting nothing done early in the season. Now it's legitimately one of the... Well, they were around middle of the pack since DJ has been there. And just when I think about Adelaide I and DJ Vesejevic and where he fits on this team, I look at the Adelaide roster and they really desperately needed someone that was a go-to scorer because they've got lots yeah. of talent on the roster. I think we've spoke about that. But Trey Cal has had big games, but night to night, he's not a guy where he's like, just give me the ball, I'm going to try and score first. He, he's, he can facilitate and he does a little bit of everything, but he's not a go-to scorer. Isaac Humphreys, I've, I've thought that maybe he can score a little bit more. He's obviously been pretty efficient this year, um, but he's not that guy right now, at least. And then Mitch McCarron, Jason Gaddy, we know these guys, we've seen it for a long period of time. Excellent guys that you want on your roster, but they're not a go-to scorer. So there's no question this was a missing piece for this Adelaide team. Yeah, I agree. They they just needed a version of this, and and the efficiency has to be better with Vasilevich, and maybe that does improve when Trey Kill comes back, and there's there's someone else out there who can draw defenders. Um, but that's that's literally all it was. It was just a version of someone who can draw defenders. It was someone who can hit some tough shots and and who plays with his head on the rim. They just needed someone who could do that because then that does open things up for everyone else. Um, I, I don't know if the, the balance is there as far as the complementary guys because I, 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 it seems like Vasilovic and Humphreys play really well together um, especially in like a two-man game they just don't do it very often um, I, so I think there is a slight efficiency in, in role guys and in coaching on this team 
and that sort of makes me cap their ceiling. But Vasilovic has like clearly lifted their floor, and they, and that showed in that win over Southeast Melbourne, where that's that's still that's a game that Adelaide should not win. Uh, but the fact that they have Vasilovic who can just go and sneak them a win, that 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 keeps them not. I don't think necessarily in the hunt, but that keeps them not completely out of reach. Um, that when when you have someone talented who can hit shots like that, you're you're sort of always in the mix there. Now he's not like a cotton level who can not just keeps you in the mix, but keeps you in like the sort of top three conversations. But he's someone who you're not going to be the very bottom team in the ladder with someone like Vasilyevich there. Um, before we could go NBA, I I, I now I don't know your answers to these, but we had a question on uh, Melbourne and Sydney, and. I, I don't know the question exactly. I don't know how it was worded, but it was, the, the headline was Melbourne, Sydney will win the title or something like that, right? Yep, that's exactly right. It, it can only be those two teams. Yes. Um, and I said that was the storyline, right? I, I think I think Melbourne is just really damn good. Um, and the craziest thing is their offense was kind of bad to start the season and, and they, were, they were just guided by how great their defense was and their defense has remained pretty good and their offense has been off the charts lately and so I just basically my my argument here was I just don't see any other team outside of Sydney because I think that really really talented and they do have some like continuity I don't see any team competing with Melbourne um I don't know did you my guess is you agreed with me not with me with the with the uh, assertion are you serious, Ogden? Have we been chatting on this podcast oh, Tassie, all season long Tasmania. or not? Tasmania. Oh, Tasmania exists. I forgot about that. Oh, they they accidentally beat Cairns, and so they'll, they'll go win a title. Is that what you think? Well, they've been Sydney twice. They've been Melbourne, so I think it would be flat-out rude yep. and disrespectful <laughs> to not have them in the hunt right now. In all honesty, like, call, they have been the number one disrespectful, okay? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't want to do that. I don't have that in, my, in me. But <laughs> there's been the number one offense right throughout uh, the season, as we know. We've discussed that ad nauseum. But defensively, yeah. yes, they are middle of the pack. But right now, even if you think that Sydney's going to improve, that's a fine take to have. But right now, they're only 0.9 of a point per 100 possessions worse than Sydney on the defensive end. So, uh, look, if you want to assume that Sydney Kings are going to get better, Maybe you can assume that Tassie Jack Jumper's defense is going to get marginally better because that's all it really needs to because the offense is so good. And the other thing with Tassie yep. that makes me feel confident about playoff basketball is they're still playing by far at the slowest pace in the league. They're at around 75 yeah. possessions yeah. per game. The league average is around 79. And I do think in postseason basketball, that can help. If you're used to playing that grinded out, little bit scrappy, half court, and you're still producing efficiently offensively, that's why I think that the Jack Jumper's Maybe they don't win the title, but I think they're absolutely a threat because I think they are going to be a damn hard team to eliminate when it comes to a three-game series. Yeah, we saw it last year as well. Like they're they're built to win playoff games, um, and that that pace is a big part of that. I they they will win playoff games if the defense continues to trend. It's trending upwards very very slowly. Uh, if it continues to do that, maybe at a faster pace, then then great. Um, I just think Melbourne is just so far and away right now as far as basically every metric that uh, it's, it's just tough for me to see any team. And it's like, I, I think Tazzy's good. 
I just think Melbourne is so great. Um, just the way they're, they're constructed, the way they're currently playing. That's basically my only argument. My argument is basically that I just don't see a team catching them. Yeah, I think it's totally reasonable as well. But let us know across the social channels about your thoughts on the top six. If you're a team, you follow a team that is outside of that top six and you're feeling confident about what your team can produce down the stretch, uh, get involved in the conversation on social media as well as we post this podcast out today because I think we are, regardless if you're someone like me that thinks maybe the top six is set, uh, I think there's a high percentage chance that in a few weeks' time there is going to be chaos and there will be a team that bolts, there'll be a team that starts to slide. So I do think that we are set for a pretty crazy stretch run in the regular season, even though still very early. And around halfway, approaching the halfway mark of this season. All right, let's pivot to the NBA and we're going to talk about some of the performances of the Aussies in the NBA. Before we do that, Olgs, Around the time that the jump went to air last Thursday night, we had a big Josh Giddy discussion there. Uh, social media was a light when I woke up in the morning. And this is via Tim McMahon, who is covering the Josh Giddy story for uh, ESPN. He tweeted on Friday in the US, uh, Saturday in Australia, the league is looking into allegations that Thunderguard Josh Giddy has been involved in an improper relationship with an underage girl. An NBA spokesman uh, reported that. Giddy and OKC coach Mark Dagno declined to comment on the matter after practice today. And since that time on Saturday morning in Australia, uh, nothing has changed. So that is literally where this stands right now. Josh Giddy did play yesterday against Philadelphia. The Sixers beat the Thunder. And Mark Dagno pregame was asked again. He's still not commenting on the situation. He said right now the playing status of Josh Giddy is not going to change. And it is a league matter in terms of what happens with that playing status moving forward. So literally, as we currently stand here, that is the only information we have. We don't have anything else. Uh, and uh, I'm sure people have been tracking the story. But that's literally all we can say on, on Josh Giddy right now is the reporting continues and the investigation continues. So we'll see over the next few days and then projecting forward to this start next week when we catch up again. We'll see if there's any developments there with Josh Giddy. As far as the other Australians that are playing, Olgs, I want to just throw to you first and say, who do you want to talk about the most? Who's intriguing you? Who's catching your eye early in the NBA season? Uh, I, I, I think we'll start with Dyson, Daniel, uh, because Little. he's gotten a ton of opportunity with CJ McCollum out with that lung injury, and he's been starting games. He's been impacting winning uh, in spots, he's been unbelievable defensively, and we've seen a little bit more of sort of his point guard flashes, his ability to to hit that in between shot, the jump shot is looking is looking solid. Um, he's someone, and again, it, it feels like I don't know if it's too Australian centric of us to contextualize the entire NBA season with the idea of Paris, the Paris Olympics in the background, uh, but it's sort of just like how we'll approach. A lot of it, uh, but just from a pure, pure career perspective, I think these are really like meaningful reps for Dyson Daniels. Um, it's he's trending as far as uh, top ten in the league in steals. He's leading the league in deflections, um, so he's making a real significant impact, especially defensively for this Pelicans team. And I'm, and my hope is that once CJ McCollum returns, and I think this will be the case because he was playing even when CJ McCollum was there. Uh, my hope is that his sort of usage and just his his trust on the floor will continue even when McCollum's back in the lineup. It's interesting because we talk about the idea 
of opportunity a lot. And sometimes it comes yeah. with some bad luck for other players. So I think Dyson was clearly going to be an every night player for the Pelicans this year, regardless. But the fact that this injury came there and it opened up some minutes at the guard spot, to me at least, I think Dyson Daniels has been the most impressive Australian in the league so far. And I think the reason why it matters for this Pelicans team, who got off to a bit of a scratchy start. And if you were tracking all the advanced numbers and the lineup data with Zion and Brandon Ingram on the floor together, it was horrible. It, the numbers were just unlike those two on the floor together. And the Pelicans look like a team that, are they fracturing? Are they on the same page? Is this a team that's going to continue yeah. to rise? But I think they've turned the corner a little bit. They're now up to 11th defensively on the season. We know by the numbers that you referenced, Dyson Daniels is a major part of that. And I think the important thing for Dyson Daniels so far this season is that he's playing with those two guys. Last year, for the entirety of the season, and keep in mind that yeah, Brandon Ingram missed time, Zion missed time, but they only played 145 minutes together, those three, for the entire season. So a pretty small number for those three on the floor together. Dyson was a lot of the times involved in second unit lineups, not so much with the best players on the team. So far this year, he's already played 172 minutes uh, sorry, last year he played 172 minutes with Brandon Ingram and 245 with Zion. This year, I messed that up. This year, he's played 145 minutes with those guys together. So that is a, a significant jump in the time that he's playing with the best players. And you know, I don't know whether Dyson Daniels is going to be your you know, second option or third option down the road in his career. I think there's potential for that. But certainly right now in year two, for him to be the really important glue guy that just does a little bit of everything on the floor with your star players, which means that you're going to get fourth quarter minutes. That's a big step. And I think that that's something that we, we should be acknowledging. I think he's had a great start to the season. Yeah. the And we can nitpick little things. You can say that the shooting needs to be better. The, the attempts are up, which is great. The shooting has to improve. It's taken a slight dip. Um, but this is when you mentioned it earlier, when you talk about opportunity and you we and when we all covered Giddy when he first got to Oklahoma City, it's okay. He, he's on a team that is not very good, and he's getting all this opportunity, and so he's getting the opportunity to make mistakes as well, and then learn from those. And he's not having to look over his shoulder. He's got a longer leash, and that's what Dyson Daniels is getting to do now because he's there by ne- he's playing almost thirty minutes a game by necessity, um, and this gives us like a a better view of what this guy can be. And, and you look at him as someone who could pretty soon turn into like a legitimate starting guard in the NBA because of his ability to defend and the fact that he can run an offense to an extent. Um, again, I, I I still, when McCollum comes back, I would like to continue to your point, see him with some of those starters out there and see him play alongside McCollum um, just to see how, how he works because I think they see him as a really cool plug-and-play defensive-minded point guard who can just help in a ton of different ways. They've got a number of young, talented defenders. And last year, before Zion went out of the lineup with the injuries he had, and as we mentioned, Ingram was in and out, they were a top five defense when they got off to that really hot start last year. So I do think the fact that he can play defense and obviously Herb Jones is right there as well. And they've got a number of guys that play that way. I think that does put them in a good position moving forward this season. But... Yeah, I'm highly disappointed in myself for completely butchering those numbers. But anyway, all you need to know (laughs) is that Dyson Daniels is playing more with the star players in this team. That's a big step up from last year. You know one guy that I'm confused about 
to this point and I was super high on him. I wrote how high I was on Josh Green coming in and I'm just, I'm just curious with what we've seen so far and, and what's going to happen over the next uh, part of the season here because I think he's in a pretty challenging situation in Dallas. It's a weird team. Can really score the ball. They're top five offense, but I thought that they acquired some guys that looked like they were trying to make steps defensively and with Grant Williams and you know, Dante Exum, we can get to him, but he's obviously a defensive-minded guard as well. I thought they, they made some steps to acquire some some guys that will defend, and I thought there might be some improvement there. They're still 25th defensively, and that's why I don't trust the Dallas Mavericks at all compared to some of the contenders in the Western Conference. And for Josh Green, the minutes are around the same. He's still playing 24, 25 minutes a game, but the scoring is down, the three-point percentage is down, the efficiency is down. And I was curious to see on the back of the World Cup, maybe some of that confidence, a bit more time with the ball in your hands. I, I thought maybe we'd see an immediate step here. So I'm just curious to see what the next stage looks like as the season continues to roll on. Yeah, it's this is a really weird and hard team to play on because you yeah. have Luca, who is very like ISO-driven, and I think Kyrie is, in, is a similar vein as well. Um, and then couple that with when we if we focus on Josh Green the it doesn't seem like so he signed his extension so you think all right they have a great plan for him you know, he is part of their future and then they start the season by starting Derek Jones and it just seemed like a really obvious fit for Josh Green to be that starting three because of his ability to defend he's a great slasher he has chemistry with Luca uh he's turning into a really solid three-point shooter in the NBA over the past few seasons. This season, still hovering around solid numbers. He's hitting from the corners at a high rate. So it just made a... The fit just seemed obvious, and it seemed like they could make progress from last season, which wasn't a great season for this team. And granted, they've won a, a good amount of games, but I don't know. It, does, it doesn't feel like they really know where Josh Green fits in this group, um, which is weird because he is like your... your prototypical plug-and-play 3-and-D wing. So the fact that they can't, that they're not utilizing him to, to I think, he, what his strengths are has just been very confusing to me. And I think that's why his production has dipped. Um, like I, I wonder if they even... I get they, they signed him to the extension because I think they had to and then he had to sign it. But I do wonder if they actually see him as part of the future of this team. Um, just because of the, the way they've been utilizing him, this in spite or no despite his I think effectiveness which I think has been like quite good actually yeah overall he's still at 36% from three so yeah that's that's fine he was up at 40 last year Uh, I agree with with most of the points you make and that's why I say the I have a curiosity and it's not even a a knock on Josh I'm just sort of watching and expecting him to be more involved than he is at this point and I get it when you have got Kyrie and Luca, it's going to be really challenging they've got other guys that can score the ball Tim Hardaway Jr. will have a handful of times through the season where he gets you 25-30 points so they've got guys yeah. that can really score they are 10-6 and six and fit in the West as well you know, for Josh he has got that contract security but I'm just going to continue to word, uh, use the word curious moving forward with him Dante Exum I just said one quick thought on him first of all i think he's been impressive he's around 50 percent from the field every time i watch him play it looks like he is making impact plays basically exactly what we've seen from him in europe the last few years and of course with the boomers where he's been a major part of what they've been doing 
the thing that's fascinating to me, and this again comes back to the Dallas Mavericks rotations that we're seeing. So Exxon at the moment, he's around 10, 11 minutes per game. But in the fourth quarter, he's averaging 5.6 minutes per game in the fourth quarter. So more than 50% of his minutes are coming in the floor. Now, why is that? Some of that is, is maybe blowouts, but we've definitely seen him in some important moments in games as well. So it's, yeah, th- that number might be a little noisy, but I just feel like he's been out there when there's been important stages in games and he's had an impact. I think he's had a, a nice start to the year, a nice return to the NBA. Yeah, I think we forget that he's 28 years old. Um, he's a veteran at this point. He's, he's was- had experiences. And so he's been in these situations, he's been in playoff situations in Utah. So he's he's been around. Um, but even, even that, with Dante playing a decent amount of minutes in the fourth, again, that just feels like a lot of this Mavericks team trialing different stuff. Um, and I point again to like the the Derek Jones Jr. minutes and some of these Jaden Hardy minutes and I, I, even the, these bulk Tim Hardaway minutes as well and like the usage that he gets. Again, this feels like they're still trying to figure some stuff out, which I think is a weird place for a team to be in that has two superstars who you're trying to maximize like today. Um, it feels, I don't, I don't know. It feels like there's no like urgency to, to get these guys going, which, and so get Dante's been just solid in, in his return to the NBA. And that's very cool. Um, when I like look at the Josh Green thing and you mentioned his contract in the security, it's also a really tradable contract. Um, is this- it's, that is a very team friendly deal for a, another team to absorb if they wish. And if they see Josh Green as having a bigger role than the one that he has in Dallas. And so. Yeah, that, that's another thing that I'm sort of like tracking at this point, whether that's, I I, I don't, yeah. Um, the, the iffiness in which they're playing him makes me think that that may not be off the cards. I think the thing with that, that I scratch my head, he's the exact type of player that every team wants, particularly if you're on a contract that is around that mid-level except, exception, affordable range. So why would the Dallas Mavericks trade him I'm sure that there would be teams that would be interested in trading for that type of play that can defend on the perimeter. There's heaps of contending teams that need that. But the thing is, his skill set is exactly what Dallas need as well. So I, I don't know about the trade situation. I, I think it's a your point on the actual salary number being tradable is bang on. But I, I he I don't know. He does feel a little underutilized. And why I don't know if the Dallas Mavericks would want to or could afford to trade him. I, I just think they should maximize him way more. Um, yeah. and I'd like, and I assume that he would feel that way. I assume someone like Luca would feel that way too. Uh, you would assume that Luca would want this three and D guy, this this guy who hits from the corners and is a great slasher and has chemistry with him on the floor with him. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I think that he he needs to be maximized way more than he currently is, and and I think that starts with starting him. Um, I I also I feel like that just makes way more sense than than what they're currently going with. Speaking of maximizing or potentially making the most of the word opportunity that you mentioned earlier. Just a quick note on Dwop Reed, because I know we did touch on Dwop uh, last week, so he just continues to be in a spot where he's going to have the chance to earn himself an NBA contract at the back end of this year moving forward, whether it's in Portland, maybe it's elsewhere, uh, because he is you know, getting real court time. He's appeared in eight games so far as we record this. In seven of those games, he's played 10-plus minutes. The thing I love, I mentioned this when we did chat about him, he's getting up four three-point attempts per game. Now, 
He's only knocking down 30% right now, but that type of aggression and freedom to get his shots up and try and score, I think ultimately is going to be great for his career moving forward. So I won't spend any more time on Dwight Reith, but we're very happy with the way that he's performing so far to this point. Let's get to the big conundrum. Now, this is big picture. This is boomers. But Jock Landau and Paddy Mills, they're not playing. Jock Landau a little bit more than Paddy Mills. Paddy Mills just saw his first minutes the other day as an Atlanta Hawk. This is, you know, big, not only for the, on the personal level for these guys, and we've gotten so used to seeing them play, so it sucks from that point of view. But big picture, this is something to monitor, I think. And not just boomers, but also for these guys' NBA careers. Um, Paddy Mills is in the final year of a contract. Jock Landau is effectively in the final year of a contract because he signed that four-year deal with it. The years two, three, and four were non-guaranteed. Well, I think year two is a team option, and then years three and four are non-guaranteed. So, Jock Landau is is eating up some DNPs, or at the very least, some games where he's getting on for between two and four minutes. Paddy Mills, Paddy Mills is not going to play basketball this this season. He's not going to play any effective, like any functional basketball. Um, and so, from a NBA perspective, you wonder is. Paddy Mills' body of work is good enough, but is someone going to take a, a mid-third, but he's six-foot point guard who is an elite shooter, but I, I, that's just not the type of player that NBA teams are taking on these days. Unless you absolutely want your veteran guy to be there at the end of a bench, and is that something that Paddy wants to do? For Jock Landau, at least his NBA body of work big enough for another team to come to the table. I think it is. The fact that teams, that multiple teams came to the table this offseason would indicate that there would be a landing spot for him, but does he want to risk potentially going to a team and playing little to no minutes when he can be in Europe making a considerable amount of money with high usage or Australia or something like that. So that's a part of that. And then you have the boomers situation where Brian Gorgian mentioned it to you and he's, he's spoken about this a lot of the fact that he wants guys playing meaningful basketball going into boomers campaigns. And right now you have Dyson Daniels, you have Giddy, you have Green, Dante to an extent. Even Joe Eagles is playing meaningful basketball, but you have two prospective starters for this team, or at the very least, two very important players for this Boomers team in Paddy Mills and Jock Landau, not playing at all, effectively. It was something that Gorgian felt hurt them going into this recent World Cup, and it looks like it, it, they're going to be in the same boat. Paddy Mills is going to go into a Boomers campaign having played zero meaningful basketball minutes. That is scary. The Rockets eight and six on the season. They've been one of the fun teams to watch. I often think when I think about Jock Landau, and so far Jock Landau has appeared in eleven games, eight minutes per game. So yeah, minimal court time thus far. But I think back to the interview you had with Jock Landau prior to the FIBA World Cup, and he just signed the deal with the Rockets just prior to that chat, and. You know, one of the things you guys spoke about was the starting role and you know, what it was going to look like in Houston. And, and Jock was obviously complimentary of Alper and Shangun. And I don't know at that point in time whether the expectation was that Shangun was going to explode like we've seen it's early in this season. He's been absolutely incredible. I think he's absolutely a most improved player candidate on that Houston team that is surprising some. I think it's just... And well, I know we focus on the Aussies, but I just think if you look at 
how teams build rosters and the decisions they make and the sliding doors moments and all these things that you go through. Remember in the offseason when the Rockets were heavily pursuing Brook Lopez as a guy they were going to pay $20 million plus a year, presumably to be your starting center? Now, was Brook Lopez yep. going to play alongside Shangoon? What does that mean for Jabari Smith? I don't know. But the fact that Milwaukee ultimately came to the party and said, okay, we're going to put a few extra million dollars per year in front of Brook. We're going to ensure he stays in Milwaukee. Uh, the Rockets obviously pivoted to Jock Landau on a significantly lower salary than what Lopez would have got. And now Shingun ex- explodes like this and blows up and he's one of the most entertaining players in the league to watch. So where that fits for Jock Landau, I, I don't know. Obviously, it was a great opportunity at the time with a potential great payday, certainly for this year and moving forward. But it's an interesting sliding doors moment because when you spoke to Jock, he was like, I'm going to battle. I'm ready to battle for this starting yeah. uh, role in Houston. Yeah, and... I bet Alperin Shingun is so, so happy that Brook Lopez decided to return to <laughs> Milwaukee because, and again, I, we're, an, we're an Australian podcast, but I'll, I'll talk about my Turkish brethren. He's averaging yeah. 29 and like 20 points, nine rebounds, nearly six assists a game. And yeah. he he's like clearly the guy that he's basically the future of that team. Him and, and Jalen Green, and they they've got these pieces. He's also twenty one, which is crazy. Uh, I think he's younger than Chet Holmgren. Yes. Yeah, putting up these sorts of numbers, he he's been incredible. And yes, that has been to the detriment of Jock Landale, because you want to lean into as many Alperen Sengun minutes as you can. Uh, and and I still think that there is a role for for Jock in this team, if they somehow continue this level of basketball and take it to the playoffs I think Jock Landau is someone who will be helpful in playoff situations um, and yeah, look the, when he, he when he signed the deal I suppose him, the interview was like the next day basically or it was just a few days after and I asked him like, why would you sign a deal with such little security and he mentioned the idea of this is like how I want to exist in basketball i want to make sure that i have incentive to continue fighting and that's that's what he's going to keep doing i bet I, I guess this is the situation he wants to be in where he's sort of his back's against the wall and he wants to to fight for minutes um the hope is that he's able his minutes are able to sort of trend upwards um because there's a, if, if it doesn't there's a good chance that he's a free agent again this offseason that will be interesting to watch the longer the season goes. To wrap this up, you got any Joe Ingles thoughts or feelings? Uh, the Orlando Magic, speaking of teams that are surprising, currently 12 and 5, mm. second in the Eastern Conference, and looking pretty damn legit early in the NBA season. And for the surprise of no one, when you've got so many talented players on this Orlando roster, the youngsters, we've seen Franz Wagner. We don't need to remind people what he could do from the FIBA World Cup. Paolo. Bancaro, we know as well in his second year, he's taken another step or has had some pretty nice moments. It's handy when you've got a vet like Joe Ingles that can just really fit in on any any team he wants in the NBA. Of course, we're going to say that Joe Ingles is the reason the Magic are having an inspired season. Well, they are one of the best defensive teams in the league because of, because of the IQ of Joe Ingles. He's out there guiding everyone. He's taken everyone under his wing. Um, look, Joe Ingles is... so. Magic, awesome defensive team. They're a really fun team to watch. And you mentioned all those guys. Jalen Suggs is part 
Other that, Cole Anthony's part of that. Joe Ingles is playing nearly 20 minutes off the bench for that team. He's one of the well, first yeah. guys off the bench, which I think surprised a lot of us because we watched the World Cup and we think, is his, is his capacity finished? Is he able to continue playing basketball at any decent, like any considerable level? Um, but he comes in and he's just somewhat effective. He's a good, and it's, it's these are like wanky terms, but he's a good leader for that team. He's a great veteran for that group. Um, but like that stuff does matter. We saw that in Utah. We saw that, we, we've seen that throughout Joe Ingles', Joe Ingles career. And I was at a Melbourne United practice last week and Gorge was there and I had a chat with Gorge. And he was mentioning the thing that we've, the, one of the issues we've been talking about as far as guys not playing and whatever. And he mentioned Joe Ingles. And he said, the role that Joe Ingles is playing for this Orlando Magic team, that's the role I want him to play for the Boomers, which is I want him to come on and there is no pressure or responsibility for him to produce at any any significant level. But he is going to be the, the the veteran for the team. He is the leader for the young guys. And he's going to be there to help breed these young guys and make sure that they're sort of blooded to, to be this X sort of team. And so... I think Gorge is maybe looking at that Orlando Magic team and, and seeing Ingles' role and, and maybe likening them to what the Boomers can be as far as what should be a really effective defensive team and a young team that has some pop. Um, and yeah, Joe Ingles, I, he, I think he went into this Boomers, this Paris Boomers cycle as maybe not 100% making the team, but probably making it. it it's more than likely going to be his, his last hurrah with the Boomers. Uh, but I think the way he's playing is it, it, almost like a no-brainer at this point. You have to include a player like that, um, especially if he can accept a role like that and, and make an impact as as a leader at the team. Yeah, I think he was one of the challenges. And to be fair, Brian Gorgian admitted that with all these young guys coming into the squad, what was the role for Joe Ingles? It changed. He wasn't starting. So, yeah, I think that they're getting some some nice evidence of what he could potentially do with that Boomers team. And I didn't have Orlando high on my list of potential free agent destinations for Joe Ingles. But when you look at it now with the accumulation of young players they have on the roster, it makes sense to bring in a guy that's been around, been in the postseason plenty of times, knows what it's like to be a professional in the league. So in the end, some smart business by the Orlando Magic to go get a guy like Joe Ingles. I reckon we've hit the end of today's podcast, the NBL back this week, of course, we were all very excited about that because you know, it's a little quiet over the weekend when I was trying to find some NBL action to keep up to date. We'd make sure you're all over ESPN.com.au, headline a storyline on Mondays, Old's Notebook on Wednesdays, this podcast, of course, on Tuesdays as well. We'll come back next week and see what happens over the weekends. For myself, Kenny Pittman, for Olga Norwich, this is the ESPN Aussie Hoops Hour. We'll see you all next week.